Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. We have a special guest on this episode. Before we get to him, though, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Rock Tape. If you're not familiar with Rock Tape, they make the kinesiology tape that's super sticky and actually sticks to you for OCR. Great for use in OCR if it stays on you. And then they also recently merged with uh, Trigger Point. So if you're used to foam rollers and stuff like that, they kind of sell all of that in one place now. So Rock Tape is more than a uh, tape company. They're a movement company. So they have all sorts of great stuff on there, blades, floss, all sorts of things to help your muscles stay uh, fresh and pliable so you avoid injury. I went to their taping course last year. It was really good and uh, showed some of the science that backs up some of the stuff that they have. And the other kind of cool thing about them is uh, they also have – topical cream so they have something called fire and ice and the fire like it's like ben gay or icy hot but it's a lot stronger super great especially if you have like tendonitis and your elbows knees etc all right let's get to the guest today joining us we have trevor psychos if you're familiar in the world's toughest community and following some extreme sports you may know him uh, trevor has finished on the world's toughest mother podium five years in a row and he's won it once overall Came in second this past year. Also, this year he also did Everest 135, so 135 mile race through you know parts of the base camp and the surrounding areas of Mount Everest, and also did a 200 mile race last year in Scotland. So, Trevor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Trevor's also a Marine veteran, so we're going to be talking about some of that stuff. And he recently finished third at OCR World Championships Enduro, the 24 hour. Ultra OCR in Australia, and that's what we're going to be talking about first. But first, I just want to say thank you to Trevor one because he was interviewed in the back of my book, Mudrun Guides Ultra OCR Bible, and two, the thing I'm always impressed about you is your consistency, right? Like, I mean, five years at World Toughest Mudder, five podiums. Um, I know some a lot, of, a lot of people probably think your win is the most impressive, but to me, like the fact that you maintain such a strong performance every year. Uh, it's to me, it's just mind-boggling. It's very impressive. So great job. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, but um, you know, endurance sports are it's it's mental. So my mental game has never changed. You know, hundred percent all the time, just hard charging. Awesome. So let's 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 start off talking about OCR World Championships Enduro and how that went. So kind of give us through. You know, everyone's familiar, or maybe not everyone, but a lot of people are familiar with World's Toughest Mudder. So kind of take us through the course, the obstacles, the pit setup, et cetera. So you ran it in 2015, right? I ran it I ran it in 2017, the year before it was officially the World Championships. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's very similar to World Selfless Mudder. The obstacles um, are less teamwork-based, more individual-based. Actually, I don't think you're allowed to even help people on obstacles. I think it's, it's a disqualifying thing. And But um, my favorite part about that race is that they allow open flame grills in the pits and everyone is barbecuing the entire race like runs through the pits which actually the pits were like a half a mile long and the pits were actually part of the course so you'd go through the finish line which was which was the only time you met on the course so you'd go through the finish line and start mile one right away and that first half mile of the course was through the pits they actually had two obstacles in the pits they had a the rig a net and uh yeah that was it but um as you run through the pits you're just smelling barbecue like bratwurst steaks and all that stuff <laughs> yeah it um it almost makes you want to eat you know in the world it's kind of tough to eat because you got to eat cold food the whole time here here you have choices to make like hamburgers and hamburgers and i mean it's great i love that i wish world stuff smother would incorporate that fact but they don't allow open flames there why do you think the rule difference between the Australia and the USA? I have no clue why they don't allow open flames at World's Toughest Mudder, to be honest. 
Well, so Vegas, I can understand because it was really dry, and I could see there being issues there. But Atlanta this year was really wet, and I know Australia the year I went was. I mean, it was soaking, and I think it was soaking this year too. So. Yeah, well, I heard the year you went, it flooded. This year was, I think, the driest year ever they had the course. It was really fast. Oh, really? Lackland got, um, was it 15 laps? So 108, 7, 8, 108 miles. Jeez. So it was a pretty fast year. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like usually he wins with like, um, I'm not even sure, 80, 90? Yeah, he's usually not that high, right? Yeah, 13, 14 laps, usually what he wins with. But um, yeah, so... So that's why Chris Mendoza and myself went down there. So right after World Suffice Mudder in Atlanta, where Chris and I came in first and second, we got an email from Adam McNamee, who is the race director for the 24-hour Enduro race in Australia, and he wanted both of us down there. So uh, we both rogered up, said we'd come down in June, and um, yeah, he wanted us to put some pressure on Lackland Daily, you know? Because he's just been cruising to a win. He won the race four years in a row before we showed up. And as you know, he won it a fifth year in a row. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> the guy is crazy. But um, yeah, that's the whole reason we went down there. Yeah. Um, and how many laps did you end up doing? What was your total mileage? I did 14 laps for 100 miles. I So I finished my 90s my 13th lap for 92 miles it was like it was like a 7.2 mile lap so it was like 92.8 whatever i finished at nine o'clock which is way too long to do one lap but just barely enough time to do two more so i just i jogged in for uh to complete 100 but had i known that i was only 11 minutes behind second i would have thrown in the hammer and you know, try to close in and pass him because I, I gained 15 minutes on him the lap before. Oh wow! But, um, but when I came into the pits, I had my pit crew was gone because I was I was using <laughs> this guy, um, a physiologist from Australia who's never pitted before or even never been to off school race. But I'm really thankful he helped me out. But but he wasn't there for my last lap when I came in. It was usually the most important lap. And then Chris Mendoza, I think, was helping out Aaron Rost. So I came into an empty pit on my last lap. So I kind of just grabbed some snacks and asked the tent next to me what was going on. Oh, that sucks. That's 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 especially let that late in the race. Like, I get upset when people can't read my mind. You know, and if if there's no one in the pit, you know, there's you're like kind of kind of fussy at that point because it's like you're just like grumpy from being awake and hot, tired, and hungry all night. You know? Yeah. So I was like tired, sore, and all I was thinking about was how far is the guy behind me which means how much can I relax? <laughs> so yeah. I, I asked the 10 next to me, he was like, how far is fourth place behind me? And they're like, oh, you lapped him. So I was like, oh, sweet. I don't got to do anything. I can walk this next lap. But I never thought to ask how far ahead is second place. If I would have asked that, they would have told me, oh, he's just left the pits, you know? And, yeah. And had they actually checked the scores, they would have seen that I gained 15 minutes on him. And that was closing. So had I known that, I, because I was feeling good still. I was coherent. I was hungry, you know. I was eating well. There was no problems with me. I could have just taken off and chased him down. But I just took off walking and ended up doing my last lap with Morgan McKay, who was um, – she was in a rut because she went from second to fourth mysteriously. What? Why do you say mysteriously? Is there a, is there a story there or are you just she's just having a bad day? Oh. Story, uh, well, I ran the lap with her and she – told me that she was in second throughout most of the night and then came into the pits one lap without seeing anyone pass her and she dropped two places so huh. i don't know if their timing was off or what but who knows yeah that's hard especially with uh they don't wear bibs there do they no like it's, that's another cool thing is you don't wear any um numbers no nothing like that but you get a timing chip you put it in your wrist or your ankle and that's it there's no bibs, no names. You're just a, a body and clothing. I kind of like the bibs from World's Toughest, though, because then you recognize names and you can say hi to people, even if you don't necessarily know them. Because you don't, it's hard to tell people who someone is by the back of their head. Exactly. Yeah, I like that, too. The bibs that people can recognize you and you can recognize people and say hi. But it's also nice to not have to wear anything besides nice. what, you, what you brought to the race. So, you know. 
That is true, because you're, otherwise you're stuck with this like sloppy, wet bib that you may not want to necessarily wear. I'll tell you, the bib, the, the bib that we wear in World Stuff is Smarter is better than those little bibs you have to pin onto your shorts that you wear in like Spartan and stuff like that. So. True, true. Now, I know the timing chips they had the year I went, when you went through the pit, it, it like showed you your lap split and showed you your placement. Did they still have that? Yes, they did. Oh, I love that. I wish I wish Worlds would adopt that. World Suffice Motor would adopt that. Yeah. So, yeah, every time I cross the finish line, I could glance left and see what my last time, lap time was. Yeah, that thing's awesome. Now, you said there was a rig in the pit. OCR World Championships is known for having some challenging rigs. Was this all rings, or was this something a little more OCR World Championship-esque? It was uh, three rings to a rope to three more rings. Okay. So nothing, nothing too crazy. Yeah, which I just long-armed and went from the first ring to the third, skipped the rope to the fourth ring, to the fifth ring, and then, you know, run the bell. It's a pretty easy rig. Okay, nice. But during the night, of course, everything got cold and wet. Dew was on everything for about from 2 a.m. until 8 a.m. So for six hours, the obstacles got pretty wet and hard. But And what was the penalty for failed obstacles? It was 20 burpees, but the burpees weren't Spartan burpees. They were um, basically up-downs. You had to go down, touch your chest to the ground, stand up. You didn't have to jump or put your arms above your head. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I like that because then I feel like people aren't going to stand up all the way, right? Like, is, if, is, if me hunched over, does that count as me standing up? Yeah, they never said anything about locking hips, so okay. who knows. Yeah, but that's what they said, so... But then again, you also got unlimited tries on an obstacle, so there was really no reason to fail an obstacle. Now, what were some of the other obstacles that were painful or, you know, noteworthy? Okay, so in World's Toughest Mudder, they have a lot of water to slow you down, like the Mud Mile and the swims, like in Vegas, everyone knows about. But um, here, they they had a lot of nets and a lot of crawls. I think there was, what, probably five net obstacles. And everyone knows nets are slow. It's big cargo nets. And um, there's probably three or four crawling obstacles. And one of them was a, a giant U-shaped one where you had to carry a nine-kilogram pole with you to simulate carrying a rifle under a, a crawl. So that really slowed down the laps. And we also had the sandbag carry and the ammo can carry. So, like, I've always heard people talk about this race, like, oh, my God, so much easier than roll stuff is mudder so much faster but really it's not my lap times were about equivalent to uh, world toughest mudder just because the carries and the crawls and the nets but um oh, go ahead did they have you actually I, when i went there was like a legitimate mud mile like you was you were walking through shin to waist deep water for i mean like almost a complete mile in the middle of the course did they have that there so we had that, but it was completely dry. So we had a really fast year, like I said. Ah. Lack, yeah, it was a really fast year. Yep, I ran through that mile, but it was a dry mile. It was just running through um, very uneven ground. Huh. Where a lot of cows walked before. That's crazy. Yeah, so with the year I went, you would that would be like probably the three – distance-wise, it was probably about three-quarters of the way through each lap. and But time-wise, it was the halfway point because you'd hit that and you just like – you just have to start slogging your way through, you know, pushing through all that water. And then, uh, yeah. Now, I know in Australia, there's a running joke that everything's trying to kill you in nature. So did you see any crazy wildlife while you were out there? Not during the race, but, you know, of course, before the race, I saw wallabies and koala bears and a million different kinds of birds that make some crazy noise i never slept in past 7 a.m just because the noises the birds make i wasn't used to them hearing that stuff out my bedroom window but um no one time i was bushwhacking in magnetic island up north in queensland and i walked through a spider web and i freaked out ripped off all my clothes <laughs> started looking through my clothes like okay i know everything here is deadly so spider web's not good so uh, yeah <laughs> basically got naked in the bush and went through all my clothes, make sure there's no spiders in them. And yeah, that was the scariest moment of my entire trip. <laughs> now, one of the things I found most challenging was dealing with the time zone change. So how did you manage that? And did you 
have any problems during the race? I had no problems because I went to Australia, what, two weeks after I got back from Nepal. So actually, I never even got used to America time before I flew back. And I flew to Australia a week before the race. So actually, yeah, I was in America less than two weeks. Nice. Yeah, I, I was still on the time. Yeah, As soon as I got to uh, Queensland, I was sleeping great the first night. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. I, I know Chris didn't – I mean, Chris flew over right before the race. Is that correct? Yeah, he, yeah, he flew over on Monday. And then Aaron Ross came on like Tuesday. Morgan McKay, I think maybe Wednesday or Tuesday. Yeah, they all came, I think, too late in my opinion. You got to at least have a week, a full week. Yeah, I I would strongly concur with that. I I came I think of it's like Wednesday morning uh, before the race, uh, the year I did it, and I was like, I mean, I was droning hard. On I've never been that tired during an ultra OCR ever. Period. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, um, yeah, time zone change is a serious thing. It's like altitude, you know. You either come the day before or you come a few weeks early. <laughs> is yeah. what they say. Yeah. Now with the pit option to actually cook food. What was your fueling strategy for the race? So I didn't know about the open fire thing that we had. So um, I did an entire world's toughest mutter fueling strategy. But um, all I used was mid-lap I used a gel, which they had two water stations per lap. The first one was about 10 minutes into the lap, and the second one was about 20 minutes before the finish. So in my opinion, the water stations were very poorly placed because considering that the, the top guys were doing nearly two hour laps to have to go, you know, an hour, hour 10 without water in the middle of the lap, it's kind of crappy and you don't need a, a water station 10 minutes into a lap. Like you just came from the pits. So I don't know why they did that, but, but, um, anyways, yeah, I had a gel on the second water station and in the pits, I would uh, grab a piece of pizza or grab some chips and I would eat it while I ran because there was a water station 10 minutes into the lap. So you could actually eat your food and then wash it down later. So that's basically what I did. Gotcha. It was just uh, salty food, pizza, chips, and um, hot soup because you could have open flame there so we could heat soup up in the tent. And uh, yeah, I just kept it simple. I didn't want to try anything crazy. I know gotcha. it works now. Yeah, I think sticking with what you know is is a good good recommendation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I tried to I tried to find American food in Australia. I got Pringles. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, I got some. Uh, I couldn't find uh, Campbell's soup, but I got something close to it. And <laughs> you know. Any other uh, kind of big highlights from the race itself? Oh, uh, it's um, it's really cool because everyone is very nice on course. And, you know, I've been going to Worlds for what, five, six years now. So the whole time I'm running on the course, like everyone's like, oh, hey, Trevor, you know, good luck. Keep pushing, which I love that. It, it helps me drive harder and keep pushing through the night. But here, no one knew who I was. So it's kind of nice to be an unknown again. And also this course is so much longer. It's what, yeah, 7.2 miles, like I said. And there's only 600 people that register for the race, which is half the number maybe even lower than half a number that go to wtm so for a lot of the course you're alone and, and also a lot of the course is single track so it's a totally different experience it's almost like an ultra marathon trail run rather than a world stuff this mutter so i really uh i really think that everyone who's done world stuff smutter should come down and try that course it's just so much different but it, it's it's so much the same but so much different it's it's a good experience and I want to go again because um, I feel like I have unfinished business there. I want to try to win it, you know? Gotcha. Now, I know they haven't announced the 2020 location. If they move the Enduro Championships and it just goes back to regular True Grid Enduro, would you still be interested in going to the race? Yeah, I would. Okay. The race director is a really nice guy. I mean, he does a very good job. Cool. Did you also do any vacationing afterwards, or did you fly back pretty much right after? Uh, day after the race, I flew to Fiji and spent three days there and then flew back home. Okay. So nice little vacation slash race, racecation going on. Yeah, yeah. I went 
to one beach and I sat there for three days and didn't move. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, a, it was a good time. I think that personally, I think that's the way to do it. If you can take the time off from work, I like, you know, I, I like using the race to, as an excuse to go to someplace new and then spending a couple more days there, uh, traveling exactly. around sightseeing. So yeah, you should try to mix race and travel. I mean, why else? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, I do want to get into some of your other crazy ultra things you've done. But before we get to that, you know, World's Toughest Mudder at the end of 2018 announced that they are going to remove all or they did remove all prize money. And I know a lot of people ended up saying, you know, all right, I'm going to go where the prize money is or I'm leaving. You're one of the few guys who said, I'm staying with the brand and I'm coming back for World's Toughest 2019. So, one, is that still the case? And two, why? Yes, that's still the case. And why is because I never started this for the money. I wish, I actually would hate to be a full-time athlete because <laughs> it takes the fun out of it. Like, I do this for fun. I have a full-time job. And I actually spend a lot of money on this. So, I spend more, spend more money than I make. So, um, and I love World's Toughest. I love the people. I love the courses. So, I don't care if they if they start making me pay for my races because I still do get a free entry through, um, you know, if you podium, you get a free entry. Just so you guys know, I'm not like, like milking them for stuff. Yeah. But, so every year I podium, I got a free entry. So I haven't paid for the race since 2013. I paid one year for the, for an entry. As long as they keep giving me free entries, I'm going to keep going because I love the race. And, um, yeah, I don't do this for a job. And I hope to never have to do this for a job because that would take the fun out of it and then it suck. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good answer. I like it. I like it. All right. Let's jump into some of the other crazy ultra stuff you've done. So earlier this year, you did the Everest 135. So tell people what that race is and kind of how it went. Okay. So this one's kind of complicated. So um, it's like Chinese rich guy, <laughs> millionaire, probably billionaire. Who knows? decided he wanted to create the craziest race in the world. And he and he wanted to do it in, in the Everest region, or the Kumbu region of Nepal, which is where Everest is, and a lot of the tallest peaks. I think uh, three or four of the 8,000-meter peaks are there. And um, But he needed a Nepali business partner, so he got together with a Nepali guy who is also an Everest expedition leader, and they created this race. So he asked for like the hardest route, and they did this route which is a combination of the original base camp approach from Jiri to Everest base camp, which is already long enough. That's the same route that Hillary took back in 1953 when he first climbed Everest. So we did that route, but along the way we did like every detour you could possibly think of <laughs> through every high mountain pass. So, so we started at around 6,000 feet and uh, within 20, 25 miles or we had reached 12,000 feet, but that is after going up and over two other mountain passes. And then um, the highest elevation we reached during the race was 18,000 feet, but we reached 17,000 three, three other times. So it was a very high elevation, um, very technical course. There was not a single piece of flat ground. There's no signs. There's a million trails. There's no roads in that in that part of the country. So if you get hurt, it's not like, Hey, come pick it up with a car. You get a helicopter. So it was, um, it was a wild race. They only allowed, um, it's still a testing year, which is the second year the race has been going on and it's still testing because it's such a crazy course. The, the year before they only allowed six this year, they had 10. They said the max they'll ever allow is 30. Wow. When, once they're fully operational. So, um, be, yeah, being invited to that was um, very humbling. I was like, seriously, you want me to come run that? I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I, dropped, I was dropping everything to that. <laughs> it's like, come test a course on the Himalayas, like one of my favorite areas of the world. So, so was the race point to point or did it like cloverleaf around? It, okay. Um, yeah, it was like a flower. So, Jiri to Namchi Bazaar was the stem. And then we went around like three, like three petals across. 
So we, we jetted out around a mountain range and then went through a mountain pass, come back down the valley, went back up through another mountain range, come back down through the valley, went back up through another mountain range, then back down the valley. Did you have a pit crew for this or was it you and your gear? It's me and my gear. But um, there was an aid station about every six miles, which sounds so close, but six miles. <laughs> yeah, not with that elevation. <laughs> it takes, no, six miles could take six hours in this course. I mean, it was a, you know, 45 degree scree climbing, you know, an hour, a mile could take an hour or more easily. Jeez. And then, then you get the downhill and you're like, oh, it's going to be easy. It's downhill. But no, now you're just trying not to fall to your death. So you're like down climbing super slow. And yeah, it's a, it's a super crazy course. There's, it wasn't a running race at all, which is why I recovered so fast for Australia. It was, I, was up, I was awake for four days. It took me four days to run 135 miles. I did that in less than 24 hours at World Cup is Butter, you know, yeah. or 105 miles. Right. So yeah. just to put it in perspective, I was moving very slow. So I was more psychologically, mentally drained after the race than physically. So I actually recovered pretty fast. Did you do anything specific to prepare for the altitude? Um, well, in a perfect scenario, I would have gone to the country at least three weeks earlier and done some hiking in the mountains, but I was deployed at the time. So I got there and basically went from sea level to 18,000 feet. <laughs> and just, <laughs> and I, I hope for the best. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, yeah. man. That is, that is not recommended. But yeah. No, it's not. No, like, <laughs> I did not. I did not know what was going to happen. I was like, I was like, well, I'm just going to do an experiment. I'm going to see if, you know, I start coughing up blood. If I start coughing up blood, I'm going to turn around and go down because I know that's, you know, hay for haze. You know, it's bad. <laughs> so I did an experiment and it worked out. Paid off. Nice. And then tell everyone how you finished. I finished third. And um, I have to say this because it's embarrassing. But I told the I told the Chinese race directors that I was going to win the race and finish in forty hours, and I came third and finished in hundred hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, just to show you how much I underestimated Nepal. Yeah, you were close to second though, weren't you? You guys were going back and forth for a while. Yeah, we were going back and forth. Um, I passed him over the last mountain pass, but coming back down, I got lost, which cost me about three or four hours. Now, when I say lost, like. I was out in the middle of nowhere. There's not a single light around me but the stars. And I lay down in the grass and I'm like, I'm just going to lay here until the sun comes up because <laughs> I, I have no clue where I am. Like my GPS died. Yeah. And couldn't find myself on the map. I was, I was like, screw it. I'm just going to lay here till the sun. And thank God these kids came out and found me because I have a tracker. Uh -huh. so, so the race directors can see where I'm at, but I don't know where I'm at. And, uh, yeah, so the race director saw that I was laying motionless. And the, Okay, so this race had really good tracking. It updated like every 10 seconds. So he saw that I was not moving, and I was in the middle of nowhere. So he sent these kids out to find me. Like, these are like 10, 12-year-old kids, and they ran, you know, a, more than a mile out in the middle of nowhere and found me. Yeah, I turned my headlamp off. <laughs> like I was done. <laughs> like you know, it was just so like, cool that these kids can do that. Like this, this uh, story is like, like a couple hours away from you just like dying in the middle of the yeah. fall. <laughs> yeah, like you seen the movie Everest? Yeah, I was about there. Just I'm gonna die in this field. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So while you're actually going through the course, uh, so you said you had a GPS. So could. You, did you follow like a GPS track? Is that how you navigated? Or did you have to do like map and compass orienteering? So so I had a map, I had a compass, I had the GPX track uploaded on my watch, and I also had a GPS with a map of Nepal. I had a three-tier three system. I was ready. <laughs> but, you know, what can go wrong will go wrong. And all three systems failed that night. Yeah. Well, okay, so what happened with my watch was that – um. My watch, you know, obviously GPS is never on track. It can be 200 or 300 feet off. Everyone knows that. So what happened was the route that I needed to be on was 200 feet below me, but it's showing I was on route. So I'm running through this field like, why the hell is it showing I'm on a trail? There's no trails around here. 
but really the the route was 200 feet below me through a bunch of brush which i couldn't see and I, all i heard was a river thinking that it was a river down there so i didn't want to go down this cliff through the brush into a river but it turns out there was a road and then a river and i need to be on the road so i'm running out in the middle of this field next to a road <laughs> parallel i guess i would have found where i was going eventually but i gave up because i was like okay my watch is screwed up and my gps is dead and i haven't checked my map in long enough to to you know triangulate where i'm at so i kind of just and i was this is like three and a half days in the race i was like i just want to lay down yeah <laughs> so i basically quit those kids saved me yeah, yeah i mean when you're like, that sleep deprived you're not making the best logical judgment calls you know yeah um, those kids well, brought me back to life yeah. i'm glad you didn't die and uh try not to die in the future so that would be <laughs> Be a, it'd be a sour note on your fitness career if uh, you didn't come back from one of these races. Now, I know you, that's not the only crazy race you've done. The year before, you did a 200-mile race in Scotland. Uh, tell us the name of that and kind of a little bit more about that race. So it's um, called the Race Across Scotland. It's 219 miles long, and it goes from the west coast to the east coast along the southern upland way. And they're doing their second year this year. I set the course record last year with 65 hours, finishing first, obviously. But um, obviously, it's the first year, or so <laughs> set the course record. But no, people have ran it and hiked it, so there's some data on it. But that was a beautiful course. It goes through. Um, it's not the skinniest part of Scotland. It's actually one of the fattest parts of Scotland. So it's not the easiest course, but it goes through a lot of great areas, um, especially in the middle. You go through some amazing terrain, but there's a lot of farms, a lot of bogs, which is, you know, wet, wetlands. And um, yeah, it's very wet, but you go through a lot of towns and you, you so a lot of people carry money and that's how they uh, get through the race. This is like shopping. It's like the amazing race. It's not entirely... You don't rely on aid stations. Aid stations in that race are up to a marathon apart. There's only, what, 200 and something miles and like 10 aid stations. So it's a very self-sufficient course. It's uh, actually a very fun experience. You got to carry a backpack with all this gear. And yeah, you're just, it's like moving through a country. It's like, how fast can you move through a country? That's yeah, that, how the race is. That sounds cool. And it sounds also a little bit safer that people understand your language. Which probably yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't speak a word of Nepalese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Besides Chang, which is beer. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably not what you need to yeah. be asking for three days <laughs> ultra marathon. So yeah. yeah, so the so what was your strategy for both those? What's your pacing strategy? Do you just I'm just gonna cruise and kind of see what happens, or I'm gonna walk? What's the what's the deal there? So um, in Scotland, um. It's my first ever 200. I'm still the only 200 I ever did. And my strategy was to go out and see what happened. And I went out with the crowd because I knew I wanted to win the race. That was my goal. I wanted to win a 200 miler. So I chased the crowd and I passed the crowd and I felt good. So I just keep, kept going. I am running like 100 miles in 21 hours or something. And then I hit a wall. <laughs> and then my second 100 miles took me, what, 21 hours and 65 so that's definitely not a negative split it's like almost <laughs> doubled my time so i'm sure there's smarter ways to do it but <laughs> it worked for me that year so i uh, actually the the race director wayne um he was also an advisor there in nepal and me and him hung out a lot he said i have a open ticket to come back to the race but I told him I'd come back if someone went to Scotland and beat my time this year. So challenges out there. Go to Scotland, beat 65 hours, and make me come back in 2020. Tell me a little bit more about the Scotland race and how any sort of lessons you learned that you carried over into world's toughest motor. Let's see. Well, the first thing I learned in Scotland was to bring a lot of socks because I only brought four pairs of socks for 200 miles, and I had some of the worst trench foot you know, I've ever seen. My feet were terrible. But in the world's toughest, I have never changed my socks in any year. So 
that rule doesn't really apply. Um, in Scotland, I went through a lot of ups and downs in food, obviously because it was um, three days long. And in worlds, usually it, it depends on the year. Sometimes I like sweet, sometimes I like salty. So I never know. So it's always smart to bring plenty of both options. I know everyone over shops every year, but that's the smart thing to do because you, you never know what you want. So bring a lot of gummies, bring a lot of chocolates, bring a lot of um, muffins and cookies, but also bring a lot of crackers, chips, and everything you think of because you never know what you want. Every, every race is different. Like sometimes I like pretzels, sometimes I like Ritz. Yeah, it's just like what you can stomach. But um, I can't remember if I heard it on a podcast or if you told me in person, uh, but you mentioned something about that you were – putting out like a pretty good pace towards the end of um the scotland race yeah i picked up at the end because the second place is closing in on me i had an eight hour lead on him but between the last checkpoint and the finish which was like 18 miles he closed four hours on me yeah i think i want to say that world service motor you told me that you were like you you were running that late into a race and you figured if you could run that right late into a race at for like the 200 mile there's no reason you shouldn't be running for Pretty much all oh, the world toughest. Yes, exactly. No. Yeah, so after Scotland, yeah, I, I mean, was it 60 hours to a race? I, la- I ran that last <laughs> 10 miles after moving nonstop for over 200. So, yeah. Yeah, I put that in my mind as, like, in the bank. Like, don't ever walk. You know, there's no reason to walk in a 24-hour race when you can run that late in a 200-mile race. So running these giant ultra marathons have boosted my confidence in the 24-hour field so much more. Like uh, Australia, I did not walk anything besides the sandbag carry and the Amalcan carries. I ran everything. I mean, then again, yes, it's a very flat course, but um, I, I ran the entire 100 miles. Yeah, I mean, that's what, I think that's what the future of the sport is, right? Like if you can't, I mean, I would say even out of the podium level now, I mean, if you can't run pretty much the entire time, it's you're not going to be standing on that podium. So Exactly. And I will say, so after doing some things that are longer than 24 hours, I find that it, like, resets my baseline because now 24 hours is no longer my max time. It's now, you know, a middle ground as opposed to, like, as far as I've ever personally gone. So I found, like, like I did a 48-hour charity thing in August, uh, before last year's World's Toughest, and at World's Toughest, I'm like 16 hours in, and I'm like, Pfft. I'm like, we just got eight hours left. This is no problem. Like, like I'm just getting warmed up here, and uh, I feel like it, it reset that baseline of kind of what I think is acceptable or normal. Um, and I'm sure that I'm sure that's done exponentially with you. I mean, doing multi-day events, stuff like that. Yeah, especially in Australia, because I, I just run four days in a row and. Um, Nepal, you know, three, four weeks before. So standing at the starting line of Australia, I was like, this guy run through the night. It's easy. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even need food. Like, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> it's so, funny how quickly you like slide down that slippery slope of, you know, endurance and, you know, what your, what your mindset is. So. Yeah. Now, I mean, those, those two events are, pretty phenomenal and really far at the kind of the extreme edge of what exists besides like creating your own FKT uh, fastest known time of a certain course. So looking out to 2020 and beyond, you know, kind of what races are on your bucket list or, you know, what do you have? Do you have anything planned for the future? Um, so the same organization that put on that Nepal race, the Chinese guy, he's already, looking beyond and he wants to do a 400 kilometer race through the desert in Western Australia and Perth. And he wants me to help test that course. I think next year, so I'm going to try to do that in the summer. Jeez. Should be their winter. And then I'd like to go back to Everest and try to win that. Cause I've, okay. So every race I enter, I, I enter to win, you know, and if I don't win, then I get fixated and I'm going back until I do win it. So I would love to go back to Everest, love to go back to Australia, and I just got to keep hammering away at these races. I mean, I haven't done that many different races. Like I just stick to one thing until I get good. 
good at it. But um, I'd my a bucket list race for me has always been level 100, and I got into it this year, but I cannot make it because I have to go to I'm deploying, so I, I had to forfeit the ticket. But I can actually pass it on the next year, so I'm going to do level 100 next year. Nice. But um, yeah, that's that's it. So I'm gonna I'm hoping to go back to Everest. I can't get back into Everest because, you know, it's um it's a it's a money race. And if they don't want me back, then I'm gonna go to Australia and try to win that. Which unfortunately Lachlan Danzi, I think he said he's done after this year. She leaves it open. Yeah. I was really hoping to race him again because he's an amazing competitor. He blew me away. I thought he he's like, oh, just this Aussie champion that can't be touched in anywhere but Australia but no he's uh serious he just, <laughs> if he if he would leave Australia he would do really well in the circuit he's a very good runner yeah I'm always surpri- I'm always surprised like I don't see him over in you know at the Spartan one or the or world's toughest or one yeah, he, came to, he came to world's toughest 2015 but he he got sick before the race ah, uh, okay. that, that nasty American food got him or something like that so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you probably went to Heart Attack Grill. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> that place looks terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? But, Too much in and out burger. He, he dropped out a few hours in because he felt like crap. Same as John Allen, same year. But, um, All right. So these races are, I mean, literally at the edge of human endurance. What is your training like on a week to week basis? I try to keep training like to the minimal. Like I try to do an hour of running a day. But I also strength train. I uh, I try to do deadlifts, squats, and power cleans once a week, not on the same day. Each one once a day. So if I if I lift that day, I'll just do deadlifts, and then I'll do squats a different day, and I'll do uh, power cleans a different day. But then I also do pull ups and push ups almost every day, like throughout the day. Like anytime I get free time, I do pull ups, push ups. But um, yeah. I, the biggest week I've ever done running was 100 miles, and I felt like crap after that. So I never go higher than 70 miles a week. And those are mountain miles. Um, road miles, yeah, about the same. I just feel like 70 is my number. Mm-hmm. Never more than 10 to 12 hours of running a week. But I also do a lot of cycling. I'm actually just pretty active all the time. I don't really watch TV, so... Just always moving around. Nice. I think I think that really helps because, you know, if you're a busy body, then moving around for a couple of days on end through a different country won't be that hard. But if you're used to sitting down and kicking up on the couch, then it's going to be hard. Now, I talked about your consistency already, and part of being consistent is avoiding injury. Now, how do you think you've managed to – because I'm not tracking any serious injuries you've had. Have you managed to avoid that, or do you have injuries? I'm just not tracking them. Um, I think I don't have injuries because I don't do speed work and I don't stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I every every run is an easy run, but I go long. Yeah, I'll I'll jog for two hours, you know, almost every day, or I mean, at least an hour every day. But sometimes I'll just jog for two hours. And I feel like, it. but I never go hard, hardly ever. I'll do um, I'll do sprints at the end of a run, maybe three or four hundred meter sprints, but that's it. I never do speed work, which is also the reason I'm not good at sprints or supers or beasts or you know Spartan races. That's why I stay away from them. Yeah. I'm a long distance guy. I, I like the grind. I like the pain. You know, that's where you discover yourself. So I yeah I just but I also don't stretch. So I think my body is just forever in this motion. <laughs> It's always tight and it's always ready to be propelled forward. It's funny you say that because I don't really, sh- I don't stretch either. And I know a lot of guys that like I, I used to train with in the college never stretched either. You know, and like the conventional wisdom is like, oh, you should stretch. And so I'm always like, yeah, 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 I should do that. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to do, do that. I'm just going <laughs> to keep doing what, what I've been doing. So. Well, okay. I do dynamic stretching. I will, you know, do like a deep squat for a few seconds and then I'll bring my knee to my shoulder for a few seconds and then 
I'll stretch my calves for a few seconds. I I never hold a stretch longer than a few seconds. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, I would just call stretch. that warming up. You know, that's yeah. I don't I don't do anything static though. I don't do yoga. God no. I know you're a military veteran. Are you still active duty? No, I contract now. Okay. With the U.S. Mill. Gotcha. Now, what have you taken any lessons from your military experience and kind of applied them into this world of extreme sports? And if so, um, what are they? Okay, so when I was in the Marines, it was a very uh, masculine field. You know, no one wants to be the weakest, right? So see everyone suffering around you, you're like, well, all right, well, I got to show these guys up. So I took that out. So when I see people hurting around me, I want to push harder. That, that feels me. Like, it makes you want to be the best and not be the weakest. So... And also, yeah, just like, just never give up, you know. And when I got out of the Marines, I felt like, well, they tell you, you're always a Marine. You always represent the Marines. So I also took that to heart and was like, well, I'm representing the entire Marine Corps forever. So I can't fail a rope climb. <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't, you know, drop out of this race. You know, I can't quit. I got to I represent all these people. We have a similar saying in Army uh, Special Forces: is you earn your tab every day. Like every day, you it, you you don't just rest on your laurels. You got to get up and re-earn it and show people because pe- because people know what your job is. So when they look at you, you're always representing uh, that skill set, that uh, profession. So you need to behave appropriately. So yeah. Also, another quote I live by: "It's not what you did, it's what you're doing." You know. It's like, yeah, I won this race yesterday, but now today, what do I do? You know? Yeah. That's gone. Everyone forgot about it by now. Most people's memories these days, like five seconds, like goldfish. So <laughs> you got to prove yourself seriously. every day. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Especially with like Facebook. I mean, it's like a week goes by and there's a new set of races. And people are like, wait, what happened last week? And you're like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Which I think is one of the reasons some of our uh, in the OCR world people get burnt out from because they try to, you know, kind of race every weekend and, stay in the forefront of people's minds so yeah uh, awesome now with that job you you've pretty your schedule is pretty flexible can you control when you uh when you work and when you kind of take time off for races yeah i can i, nice. I pick my schedule and um is either i miss world toughest mutter or i miss leadville and i chose missing leadville because i'm not going to miss world toughest mutter <laughs> yeah awesome well i'm excited uh, i will definitely be back there hopefully as long as they don't dish, get rid of my team division with me and Wesley, we'll be doing that again. If they do, we'll, we'll drop down to individual because our. Oh, hey, good job in Philly. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I was super happy. That was like just super happy with that race. I just ran so consistently, and um, I think if we would have kept extending the clock, I might have, I might have clawed one or two positions higher. But. Oh yeah. So. Well, we'll see that in 24 hours. That's why yeah. I like a 24 hour venue better. Yeah. Yeah, I knew the 12-hour would play to my advantage. Are you going to any of the toughest this year? Um, I'm going to try to make uh, Las Vegas. Okay. We'll see. I Because I got a ticket, either Dallas or Las Vegas, but uh, I'm gone this summer. So. Gotcha. It's only two options. Before we let you go, any other any other wisdom you want to impart on us? I mean, I, I just in awe of your performances, both in OCR and then also in the endurance world in general. I would say everyone try to travel overseas for a race this year. I think that's good advice. Those, those travel, the two like ultra OCRs I've traveled for. I mean, my, my wife absolutely loved those trips and we did Australia and we did UK, Ireland on a different trip. And then uh, I know you have, I know the, like personally, like I found that, when I like while I'm on vacation, I'm like, oh, I'm spending so much money. This is terrible. And then you know, like fast forward a couple of weeks or months, and I'm like, oh, that was totally worth it. Every single time. Yep. Like, yep. I mean, how how much more stuff can you have? Like, I just don't, I don't need more stuff. But experiences, I mean, you can. I absolutely cherish them. And traveling overseas, you know, I think there's just even like day to day. Like you watch a movie and you'll be like, oh, I've been there. I've been there. Oh, you remember when we went there? And it's, I don't know. You'll be more happier with that vacation than that motorcycle, you know? So I think. I agree. 
Strongly agree. Yeah. Cool. So final shout out you want to give friends, family, sponsors, etc. Thank you, Goo Energy, and thank you, Gota, for always supporting me. For our listeners, uh, you can head over to TeamStrengthSpeed.com. It's got more great products on there. Blegmit lights are fully stocked, the one-millimeter Blegmits, small, medium, and large. And the two, my two newest books are also on there, Mudrun Guide's Ultimate OCR Bucket List, so you can hear about 100-plus races, including foreign ones, uh, like we talked about kind of on this podcast. And then my other book, The Autobiography, Ultra OCR Man, uh, is also on sale. And that one, the ch- the 100% of the profits of that go to the charity Folds of Honor. Um, so pick up a copy of that. I think the book came out really good, obviously. I wrote it. Um, but super good book there. And I also have all my books are now converting over to digital. So if you're more of a digital person, you can go to Amazon Kindle, and you can actually shop for all my books there. And then if you have Kindle Unlimited which is like Netflix, but for reading, you can actually read most of my books for free. So that's a pretty cool uh, feature that's currently going on. So check that out. Trevor, looking forward to seeing you later this year. I don't think we'll see each other until World's Toughest, but um, keep up the great work. And if people want to hear more from Trevor, I know you were interviewed on Overcome and Run with Heather after both of those two big ultra races you've done, the uh, Everest one and the scotland one you can head back to overcome and run listen to those episodes and then if you want to read more about trevor and his training and some more of his stuff some more of his background uh, mud run guides ultra ocr bible he's interviewed in the back of that and uh put out a lot of good information there so trevor thanks again for coming on hey thanks for having me i'll catch up with you later all right see you.